3: Welcome to Censored, the podcast dedicated to smutty banned literature. My name is Aoife Vrittnach, a historian moonlighting as a book reviewer. I planned this week's podcast just as a new censorship debate engulfed Ireland. A Tampax ad was banned. The Advertising Standards Agency decided that telling girls to get tampons up there is offensive. The ad can no longer be broadcast on Irish TV. 84 people out of a population of 5.5 million complained and that indicated widespread offence. But there's some consolation. At least we have moved on in our censorship habits. One complainant was enough to get a book banned. What hasn't changed is censorship bodies making a holy show of themselves and the nation. The Advertising Standards Agency should be careful. Embarrassing headlines abroad led to drastic reforms of the power of the censorship board in the 60s. Never underestimate the power of shame in politics and culture. This week's book is The Pilgrimage by John Broderick. Published in 1961, it was banned that year. And Broderick's book was too frank about sexual desire to be read by the Irish public until 1975. After all, the first sex scene is page 11. Broderick did not introduce the sex slowly. It has been described as a penetrating analysis of the sins lurking beneath the surface of provincial town respectability. I disagree. I think it's about men and women trying to get their whole. The main characters in the book are Julia, who is married to Michael, Jim, Michael's nephew, and Stephen, who's Michael's manservant. Julia is shagging Jim because Michael is a bedridden invalid and she's horny as hell all the time. When he backs off, she ends up sleeping with Stephen. But it's much more complicated than that. Michael is gay, as is Stephen. It's quite a complicated love-sex rectangle. This book is not really about small-town life. It's a tense drama of secret sex, desire, fear and violence. Much of the action takes place within Julia and Michael's house, a lot of it in her own bedroom. So yes, Julia's amorous adventures got it banned, but the book's truly transgressive content is its depiction of gay life in 1960s Ireland. And I'm very lucky to be joined by a guest to explain the significance of this book to Irish queer literature. Dr. Declan Kavanagh, senior lecturer, in 18th-century studies in the School of English at the University of Kent. Hi, Declan. Hi, Aoife, How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to get into this
2: book. I'm really excited about talking about this book. This is probably one of my favourite books uh, in Irish Irish literature of all time. Really?
3: Oh mm. wow!
2: Yeah. That is, that, is,
3: that is some recommendation. I mean, there's a lot of those books.
2: Well, I suppose it's one of my favourite ones. I think we'll be getting onto that. I don't know if I would recommend it, but uh, it certainly isn't a very important book uh, for me for several reasons.
3: Well, I can't wait to hear more. But before we move into the book proper, we usually talk about the refreshments that would go with the book. I would choose Brandy. Now that's in spite of the fact that poor Julia hits the bottle quite seriously halfway through the book, drinking brandy in the cocoon of her bedroom. I think she has an ensuite as well, which is very fancy indeed. There's also whiskey offered to the visiting clerics, but they don't want to drink it very much because they have to be forced in a kind of go on, go on way. And obviously there's always tea because it's an Irish novel. But what would you drink to go with this book, Declan?
2: So I don't drink alcohol. I wouldn't be having any of the whiskey or the brandy. The options for me, uh, weak tea, really, really weak tea. I mean, lukewarm and dreary, not even a biscuit. And if there is a biscuit offered, it would, wouldn't be one you'd want to eat anyway. So that's one option. And then the other is I saw on page uh, 26, coffee with lots of cream and lots of sugar. So I think I'd alternate between really weak tea and coffee with lots of cream and lots of sugar.
3: Oh, creamy coffee sounds great. But really weak tea with no biscuits? Oh,
2: God. And they're rich? That's just terrible. It's just kind of the atmosphere of the text, isn't it? That it's still sort of even picking it up over the weekend. It still evokes this kind of boredom and i associate weak tea with like just a really boring kind of meeting or or kind of space you're in that you kind of just want to get out of you know
3: quite a gray day when even
2: the tea doesn't cheer you
3: up so when i asked you which was months ago now if you would like to talk about any of the queer literature that was banned you suggested the pilgrimage now you said already this is one of your favorite books so why did you choose it
2: yeah, so I came across uh John Broderick's The Pilgrimage when I was studying uh for an MPhil in what was called Anglo-Irish literature at the time in 2007 uh, to 2008 at Trinity. And I ended up reading it in, I think, about two days. And I was just so shocked. I was so shocked that it was a book that was published in Ireland in 1961 by a guy from Athlone. And in this book, there were clearly depictions of Irish queer life. So it wasn't that there were fully developed characters who were identifying as gay or that it was some identity uh, kind of for these characters. What was being shown was that in the absence of um, a clearly defined identity, uh, and we're talking about 1961 here, so we're 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 well before um, the 70s and the sort of the civil rights movements, and you know they happened a bit a bit later in Ireland. But in the absence of all that, we still have characters who are desiring intimacy, connection with each other, and who are living these kind of closeted lives. We get this sense of the closet and what the Irish closet sort of looked like in in the 60s. And it's, I mean, it's of a piece with the closet elsewhere. We have blackmail, we have subterfuge, we have intimidation, we have violence. Um, and this all came to me as a kind of eager uh, MA student um all those years ago, uh, who was really just searching for a way to think about unlocking or tapping into a queer Irish literary um, culture. And I think Broderick is really queer because he actually avoids identification in lots of ways. He refutes identification. You know, his writing really forces us to look at uh, the hypocrisy in Ireland, because it is specific to Ireland, that governs. The life of the body and governs intimacy in all sorts of ways. Um, so yeah, so that all hit me <laughs> when I was this MA student. The writing isn't, you know, the best writing I've read. But for me, and that's why I say I hesitate recommending the book. It's like, what am I recommending it for? Am I recommending it, you know, for you to read and think, wow, this is uh, an amazing work of literature? I think there's great parts of the pilgrimage that are that are that are beautiful there's great economy in the work is it a great book no but in terms of um what it is when it was written it's a very important book for me it's a book that i had never heard
3: of actually when i looked at the list of banned irish authors i'd never heard of john broderick i'd never heard of the pilgrimage and so it's one of those kind of minor Irish band books, I suppose. It hasn't achieved that great notoriety and neither has Broderick. I mean, what sort of bloke was he?
2: I suppose what's coming to me is a, is a, a view of a man who's kind of stuck in the wrong time. I think he's stuck in the wrong time. He was born in Athlone um, grew up in Athlone. He writes about Athlone. He writes about that landscape. Of the Midlands. He writes about it as a treacherous landscape, a flat landscape, a wet landscape. He's definitely a man who's been formed by Ireland and by ways in which people, and this happens in Ireland, I don't know if it happens elsewhere, but being read and marked as kind of being, you know, being exceptional or having notions about oneself. I feel like Broderick was misunderstood and he was quite privileged. I mean, there was a lot of money in the family. So that set him apart from a lot of the people uh, in the town. He obviously is different. The word that comes to mind about Broderick and I think Broderick is different. Uh, And perhaps that's me thinking of my own childhood and, and maybe reading myself into Broderick. But I think... He would have felt different. He would have felt maybe better in some ways than the people around him. He would have felt privileged. And he would have felt scared, I think, as well. He would have felt scared about about his difference. There's one story I just want to share. And it came to me when I was uh, chatting to people who knew Broderick. I went to Athlone and I... Looked. There's a fabulous archive in Athlone Public uh, Library that's um, stewarded by Gerard O'Brien, who knew Broderick. And the sense that I got of Broderick was he, you know, before he, he, he moved to Bath, he kind of just didn't fit in in Athlone. And there's one infamous story of him coming back and getting out of the car on the main street of the town with a handbag that he had a handbag. And that's the story. And this shocked people that he had this handbag. Now, I can only imagine that it was some overnight bag that, you know, he used for travel. But it was, you know, it was unheard of. And growing up in Maynooth, where I grew up, decades later, but growing up, you know, different, thinking of myself as being very different, That's something that I instantly recognise. I instantly recognise the ways in which the the twitching curtains, the eyes of a town can descend upon a person and kind of just remark on a transgression. The man had a handbag. Mm. Uh, And that has lived on in cultural memory about Broderick. And what I recognise in that is the oppressive nature of someone who is different who is living in a space where conformity matters where um, the eyes of the the village the town are on, are on you or perceived to be on you and really the the kind of the pressure of that is something that i i would hope is gone from from Irish society now. I don't think it's strange to see a man with a, a bag, uh, you know, a man bag, I think they're called, or to see, you know, somebody wearing something flamboyant or, or, or garishly coloured or whatever. I, I would hope, I think we're past that. I don't know. But certainly when I was reading this text and when I was researching Broderick, this was something that I could say, actually, do you know what? I know exactly how he felt hearing that story back about him having a handbag. He probably thought, oh, for God's sake, it's not a handbag, it's an overnight bag and it costs so much and it was from France and, you know, they wouldn't even understand it. You know, I I hate this place, I want to leave. You know, that's how he felt. He did leave. Um, uh, As I say, he went to Bath, following in the steps of uh, Jane Austen. And while in Bath, he realised he had made a mistake. He had made a mistake, um, and I just want to read, if I can, um, just what he says about the English in Bath. He says, Of course, by now you know that I've never really settled here. I made the bad mistake of confusing London with England. This is the real England. The natives here are the real English. They are clever and evasive and sly beyond belief dissipated and morally empty. The only thing that means anything at all to them is money that they worship. He died there. He died as an alcoholic, essentially, there in Bath in in 1989. And yeah, that that, that saddens me.
3: I found it interesting you were talking about that sense of difference that he experienced, that he was both privileged, but yet afraid and sort of concealing himself. And I I felt that Julia often came across like that. Although she's living in this great house, she's walking through the town and she's terribly conscious of everybody, you know, staring at her and talking about her.
2: Oh yeah. I mean this is the thing about Broderick's uh female characters. If you're going to read them as women, you're going to be disappointed. Because, you know, they're not women. <laughs> um, They really aren't. I mean, they are vehicles for Broderick to talk about his own sexuality, I think, in lots of ways. And I think to talk about sexuality, so he breaks it apart. You have the representations of what we would perceive to be gay men that are kind of on the fringes of the text in the uh, pilgrimage. And then you have Julia at the centre, who is... Essentially, a, yeah, a vehicle for discussing all sorts of pain and pleasure and fear and um, anxiety that is bound up with sexuality and people's experiences of sexuality at that time. He does that through her because she's clearly she's clearly a gay man. That's what she is. She's a women are a vehicle for Broderick to talk and I can't even say that he's really talking about misogyny because, I mean, yes, misogyny comes up in the text, but it's not, it's not something that he's doing in order to, I think, uh, critique it or, or shine a light on it in its own right. It's part of a general sort of tapestry of abuse that's there. So we can't read these women as women. And that is a critique of Roderick, you know, because it's easy for me to say, we can't read these women as women, but then they are women and he has written them as women. So his view of women is an area that requires careful, careful conversation.
3: I'm so glad that you said you can't really read them as women because I was about a third of the way through and I thought, hang on, this there's something about this. This isn't quite going where I expect it to particularly in her relationships with the, the male characters. It was just it was just kind of strange. And then when I thought about it a bit more, I was like, she's having all this sex, but she hasn't talked about contraception once. That's weird. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. She, I mean, there's something kind of cruisy about these episodes with Julia. At one point, Broderick has, has her go into a cinema in Dublin. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because... She goes into the cinema, which is clearly a kind of cruisy sort of space. And he writes about a man kind of moving over and sitting closer to her and kind of not exactly exposing himself, but kind of getting closer in order to do so. And she kind of goes out of the cinema. And you're kind of thinking if he could write the way he wanted to write, maybe he would be writing uh, a male character going into the cinema and cruising it just seems very odd, but again, it's a screen. It's a screen for him to talk about the ways in which sexuality is something that compels all of us to do uh, certain things, to find find a connection. But when we find that connection, we're often shamed for it, and that's what happens, Julia. Constantly, she's looking for a connection. And she is, her body is used by these men, and she's shamed for providing her body. The the ways in which Broderick writes about that don't seem to take into account things that are specific to cisgendered women, uh, and particularly cisgendered women of that era at that particular time.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a miracle that she never once got pregnant or never once talked about it or, you know, things that are generally the center of those narratives about sex, yeah. pregnancy, you know. Yeah,
2: yeah, I know. And it's not even mentioned or it's not kind of um, thought about because I think Julia really is a gay man.
3: Yeah. And I think part of the problem for me reading my edition was it has this picture of a woman combing her hair languorously in a mirror and there's a manservant in the background and the back said something like Julia is a woman who can't live without men and I was like oh okay so this is about Julia and then you're reading it thinking I'm not sure this is about Julia actually as in Julia is cis cis woman out there looking for men you know it was quite and I think that was part of the problem for me was just that the packaging so distracted me and then when yeah. I went looking, a lot of the packaging of this book doesn't really explicitly mention those queer elements and how it could be read that way. And I know it's maybe a little too complicated for the back of a book, but it is still very focused on Julia, you know, the marketing.
2: Yeah, I think it is. And I think I think it's focused on a kind of narrow view of what this novel could be about. I think it's hard to market something like the pilgrimage. Certainly not today, but but I can see how it would be hard to market it back then, because the novel sort of operating at kind of different levels, and the surface is a wife who's married to a closeted homosexual who's crippled with arthritis. She is having an affair with his doctor uh, son. We get lovely descriptions of his broad chest and his hairy hands and, you know, all this kind of objectification of the male body, which, you know, uh, Broderick is interested in. And then she has an affair with Stephen, who, I mean, I don't know if Stephen, Stephen, I don't know what Stephen's sexual uh, inclination is. I mean, I, I, I always read him as bisexual, but, you know, he's often described as gay and kind of in the closet as well doesn't have a lot of agency so we don't really know but he has an affair with uh julia he's also been uh you know close to michael um so he's at the center of this uh relationship and it all involves a trip to to lurds to to cure uh michael how do you market that that's the surface of it but what's going on underneath is really it's giving us a glimpse of Ireland that you're not going to find in Edna O'Brien. You're not going to find in uh, John McGahern. You're not going to find this Ireland. I'm not saying that their Ireland's aren't real or valid, just in the way that I'm saying that Broderick's isn't any less real or any less valid. But it's kind of it's kind of mad that he has to create this sort of layer of a text that is dazzling us with all of these characters in these positions, these constrained positions in order to really kind of then uh, allow us a glimpse into what could be happening in Dublin. So Dublin is the space where all of this is happening and we get these glimpses into what's happening in, in, in Dublin.
3: There is a lot about the life in Dublin as an alternative to the life in this town and, you know, that tension I mean, the really disturbing part was when the, the regional policeman shows up in Julia's house and it turns out he's in touch with the lads in Dublin and they're telling him all about goings on,
0: like mm.
3: how some of the men are behaving in Dublin on the, mm. on the gay scene. And it's just a really interesting way of bringing those two aspects of Irish life together. You know, this glossy metropolitan life where you can have an alternative identity but yet you're still being surveilled at home in this small town with
2: this tough policeman who comes in. Yeah, I mean, what Broderick is kind of saying is that you're, you're never safe, you know, in Ireland. There's always, you know, somebody who knows somebody who will clock you, who will report back. There isn't that anonymity that he would have found in London or Paris. You know, I'm conscious I don't want to conflate Broderick, the author, with Julia. Um, You know, I don't want to do that. But I think there is something about that transit between, we'll say, a town like Athlone and Dublin and the way that information uh, and prejudice circles back.
1: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's very interesting, the locations of the novel, you know, the house,
3: the church, and Dublin, they seem to be the places, actually. There's so little else. But just moving on to the ending then. So the ending I thought was, I don't know, maybe I should just reread the book now that I've thought more about layers. But at the very end, they go away on pilgrimage, having spent some time preparing to go away on pilgrimage. Most of that preparation involves Stephen and Julia going to mass every day and supposedly looking devout, although neither of them seem to be that into it. And then they go away, all four of them, Michael, Jim, Stephen and Julia, and it's all kind of arranged nicely. Jim knows that Stephen and Julia are shagging and is okay with that. And Michael still doesn't know anything as far as we know. And then mm-hmm. the last line, I mean, the last line was just, I didn't know what to think. I just put the book down and thought, what? I mean, what What do you think of it?
2: I need to know how much can I reveal here?
3: You can it's... reveal everything. Spoilers are okay. These are old books. Okay, so
2: if you want to read the pilgrimage, stop the podcast now, read read the book, and then and then and then come back on. Okay, so there's thirty two chapters in this book. A chapter is like anything from four pages to six pages of text. They're quite short chapters. and chapter thirty two is the final chapter, and it comprises of one sentence, and this is actually the sentence that got the blasphemy charge. Um, leveled against the book. So there was an indecency kind of charge, but then there was also a charge of this book being blas- blasphemous. And the sentence is this. In this way, they set off on their pilgrimage, from which a week later, Michael returned completely cured. And that's how it ends. It's, it's mad. I, just, I was like,
3: what? He gets, I mean, first of all, a cure in Lourdes? Like,
2: wow. It is a miracle. It is a miracle and I think it's a genius ending. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm surprised that you hate it, but I you know I, I respect that. And, but I actually think that the ending of this text is just genius. So this is a book in which disability, the disability that Michael has is used. The way disability is used in fiction, in uh, film, in drama often, he is only disabled in this text because it allows Julia and Jim and Stephen to carry on the way that they're carrying on. And we know that when he was able-bodied, that he, Michael, ran the house with you know, a very, very tight an iron fist almost. We, we we don't see this coming. There's no way of seeing this coming. And what this ending for me does is it completely reinvigorates the constraint that these characters have found a way to navigate around. So with the disability and um, miraculously cured, we now can picture Julia in a house where Michael is going to take a much more active role. And that role of the Irish patriarch is going to be completely reinscribed, which means that her life, her little trips to Dublin, her shagging Jim, her dalliances with Stephen are all going to end. They have to end. What it means for Michael is he will have, as he's always enjoyed, the cloak of respectability that comes from being married to Julia, his younger, attractive wife. But now he will be able to continue, you know, having having uh, encounters, homosexual encounters. And his hypocrisy, His and it is hypocrisy because he demands that Jim, Julia, Uh, toe the line uh, and, you know, we hope he won't find out about their encounter. You know, if he were to find out, we would, you know, we would see, I don't know, we would see kind of repercussions, but there's no repercussions for him because he may be a closeted gay man, but he is maintaining this position as patriarch. He was hit by disability, which is presented in really kind of an ableist way. OK, he is cured of that disability and now he's able bodied and now he's going to assume the, the, the same sort of exacting role that he played before in Julia's life. And she is really going to be put back in a kind of very confined, even more confined space than she finds herself in now. So really what this ending does for me is it kind of does powerful work. In showing how in Ireland, in this place at this time, even a miracle, a miracle happening leads to more oppression. Yeah, that there's no way out of the maze. You just can't get out. There's no way out. And the only way out for Julia was that Michael would die, Mm -hmm. really, and that she would be left a widow and she would be left with money that she could then use that's not gonna happen. And not only is that not gonna happen, he's back now and he is, you know, going to be a stronger influence for many more years to come. And also the, the you know, you can imagine the clerics that are going to be coming through the and Bishop
3: the, and the Oh bishop
2: my god Pope and whatever, she is she's over, basically. Yeah. She's over. And I think Broderick is saying something about about homosexuality there as well. I think through Julia and through this moment, I think you know he's saying that there really can't be a way out in 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 this situation where people are benefiting from the the system and becoming enforcers of of the system. And the critique, the real critique here in this novel is a critique of men. That's yeah. the critique we're getting. Because when Julia has sex and she's called a whore, it's not endorsing that. You know, really, he he isn't endorsing that. And he's not endorsing, I would say, Michael either. You know, Michael has all of the power and the privilege and he even has miracles, you know, happen in his life. But at the end of it, he's a gay man. And what's going to change if men like him don't change their own hypocrisy? Yeah. What go- that's, so, why I,
3: that's why I kind of, when I got to the ending, I was like, oh, my God, Julia's stuck even worse back. It's worse than back at the beginning. It's before Michael was crippled. Absolutely. She's in this place where she is entirely vulnerable to his every whim in bed and out of bed, you know. And it's, and it was just like, oh, really? I mean, that little space that they had, which was a bit weird and possibly unsustainable, but at least it was something. And then suddenly it's all closed down and wiped out.
2: I just, I was devastated, you know? I love the ending because it really kind of shows how for these characters who are written into a text which, you know, has great economy. You know, I'm not saying it's written, you know, in the best way, but the actual economy of the text is very, very tight. You know, tight writing about characters who live really restricted lives, where their every footstep is kind of recorded and, you know, anything can be used against them. Think back to Broderick exiting the car and at loan with the handbag. Um, Everything is kind of under surveillance. And then when a miracle does happen, it happens in such a way as it makes all of that worse. It just serves to firm up the oppression that is at the heart of this text. So even God isn't going to save you. God is not going to save you. But the other thing is, it was deemed blasphemous because Michael is the one who receives the cure And somebody like Michael, a closeted homosexual in the eyes of the church wouldn't, um, wouldn't have been deemed worthy to receive such a cure. So is there something there? Receiving this miracle is a bit subversive of how the church think Mm. at this time about homosexuality and who is worthy of receiving such a gift so there's something going on there as well and I
3: would have thought they would have found it blasphemous that the two people praying for the miracle the wife and the manservant Julia and Stephen I mean they don't want to pray they are literally going to the chapel every day and they're like oh yeah we gotta go and they pretty much sit there and do nothing so it's all show
2: I mean they're all on autopilot really aren't they because it's simply another kind of extension of how they need to be seen to act. And in the end, you have the character that's kind of constrained the most. This is the irony. He's constrained the most because of his disability. Um, And when that disability is miraculously, we'll say removed, because I don't like the word uh, cured, but when it's removed from the picture, when he becomes able-bodied, that just leads to further constraints on the other characters
3: it's it's a puzzle and you can't get out of it you know you can't solve you can't find the end and i like what you say about it being economical because it's actually really quite a short book i was surprised to see how short it was and although i do agree that some of it isn't it isn't as perfectly written as often other books are but i am very glad that i read it because it's so unusual It was a real eye-opener for me in terms of Irish literature. You know, nothing I've read by an Irish author has been like that, has contained Mm -hmm. that level of tension around the surveillance idea and around the malevolence and the blackmail. I mean, that part where Julia's being blackmailed is like, I was turning every page, waiting, going, am I going to find out who who has done this? I thought that was a really extraordinary achievement, actually.
2: Broderick's works... Don't easily fit with traditions uh, of uh, Irish um, Irish writing. I mean, Kate O'Brien was very um, sympathetic to to Broderick, and she, you know, she wrote that he throws a light of truth and understanding into very dark holes in the Irish spirit. He's one determined and melancholy kind of realist. But the kind of realism that you get in Broderick is very different to the kind that you get in John McGahern and even someone like Edna O'Brien, who he hated. He absolutely hated that woman with a passion. And he wrote really nasty, nasty reviews of Edna O'Brien in things like Hibernia and the Irish Times. Kind of in the early 70s, he, he started writing these reviews. And it lost him a lot of... Friends, he was just really, really nasty. He he had these interviews as well, where he could just be really bitchy. Like he said in one interview that he had met Edna O'Brien on a plane, and he'd gone up to her and he had said, "Look, we need to we need to sort all this out. We need to put all this behind us. There's been too much kind of bad blood between us. But you should also sort out the age spots on your hands." He didn't. He did. Well, I don't know if he did that, but he said he did that. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was a bitch. He was a jealous bitch. Let's be honest, he was. Because she was getting a recognition that he felt probably entitled to, you know? And he wasn't getting that recognition. I'd love to talk to Edna O'Brien. I mean, she's outlived them all, hasn't she? (laughs) I'd I'd love to talk to her about Broderick. And I'd be very interested to know what she thought of him. I suppose because
3: Edna O'Brien is now even more well-respected now than she was then. You know, she oh, was big yeah. then, but now she's, you know, she's an untouchable goddess of Irish literature, really.
2: Absolutely, so, yeah.
3: You know, anyone who spend their time slagging her off isn't really going to have a lot of fans promoting his work. Well, it's quite cool. I mean that you've told me so much about someone who, who has shone this light into those dark holes. I just found it a remarkable book in many ways, just because it was so unexpected. I can't wait to read other Irish novels again, now having read this one, because I think it has sort of flipped a switch in a way that I just look at things slightly differently, I think, after reading it, even if it's not a perfect book. It's a very interesting book. So, time to move on to the best part of the podcast, censorship bingo. So, for John Broderick's The Pilgrimage, we'll start with breasts. I actually don't think there were any references to breasts in this one.
2: Well, I talked about the male chest. Jim doesn't have breasts, but we imagine Jim has pecs.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so it's like... The equivalent objectification of a of another body to talk yeah, about whatever he's sexual.
2: That's sure. He's not bursting out of it because he's overweight. He's bursting out of it because he's a strapping young lad, basically. Um. So I would say yes for pecs. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're to read
3: Julia not as a woman, then it makes perfect sense that there's no reference to breasts because. Honestly, it's one of the things that comes up most often in anything featuring sex or breasts. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. actually makes sense that pecs are a stand-in in a queer novel pecs. like this.
2: Yeah, pecs are a stand-in. Yeah,
3: <laughs> brilliant. Okay, we'll we'll take it. So as a kind of a, let's pretend it's pecs. Yeah. Um, bestiality? No, there was definitely no bestiality in it. No. Uh, sex work? I. Don't think so. Was there any reference to anything in Dublin being a bit almost like sex work? Or Well, we haven't
2: spoken about Tommy Baggett and, uh, you know, the, the, the suicide and all of that. I thought there was some kind of sense that he was existing in Dublin and maybe doing things that were like sex work. Mm. But but that, you know, I, I think I'd have to reread, but I think that was... Not explicitly said, but I think it could be inferred, maybe.
3: Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I felt that the surveillance by the detectives was sort of yeah. tied to that kind of thing.
2: Like, how would they know? He was probably meeting men for sex and maybe payment was a part of that.
3: Yeah, I think we could take it. There was something. It felt to me like it was kind of on the margins there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Racism? No, I don't think there was any real reference to anyone other than white Irish people.
2: Well, there's the whole thing about Stephen looking kind of foreign.
3: Oh, yeah. Is because he kind of swarthy in some Galway. way?
2: <laughs> well, he's kind of dark and he's from Galway. And then they have this whole conversation about the Spanish Armada. And then they're like, no, it's not because of the Spanish Armada that, you know, the Galway people sometimes raise those types. He's like, he's other, but but not, you know, in any kind of discernible ethnic way. He's still white Irish, but they perceive him to be like a bit different. It almost slips into something, mm. but doesn't. That Spanish
3: Armada trope that comes up quite a lot in Ireland, where yeah. it's the only way you can explain people who aren't pink. Yes. Yeah, I, I think we might leave that because it's not quite, hmm, it's not quite enough drugs no i don't think there was any reference to drugs was there even in dublin
2: god i don't know i'm thinking of tommy baggett again no i don't think there, there was
3: booze obviously but yeah not the other drugs because booze doesn't almost count as a drug really yeah in, no in so politics no explicit politics swearing no there was no bad language at all was there
2: well, Jim has that, you know, those goddamn queers. Uh, ah, yeah. Is, is damn a bad word? I don't know. Goddamn. Is that, you know, is that would that, bad? Be, would that be considered swearing in 1961
3: Ireland? Jim is a bit sweary and they do say whore. So actually, I'd say that would probably count. So yeah, we could tick, we could tick swearing. Um, yeah. infidelity, obviously, cause Judy is shagging around like a mad thing.
2: Yeah, infidelity on tap.
3: Definitely. Uh, crime, well, yes, because, you know, homosexuality is itself illegal at this point. So Yeah, until
2: 1993.
3: 1993, man. Every time you think about dates like around these issues of sexuality in Ireland, it, you keep going, really, that late?
2: That yeah. fucking
3: late, lads? Yeah. It's nuts. Uh, genitalia. I don't think so did was there i don't think there were any real explicit references to the body in that way
2: no it's all kind of over really isn't it like we get up to the point and then like they're they're like getting dressed or you know whatever
3: yeah yeah um, the, the sex happens between the lines
2: yeah between the lines so no no genitalia no no abortion as i said no need because she no need because it's just not realistic
3: lucky (laughs) woman she can shag anything and not get pregnant it's not coming into the mix no uh no orgies or that dublin reference to the big party but that could just be a party in fairness
2: oh i hope it's an orgy (laughs) you kind of want it to be but it's yeah unlikely it's really pissing jim off I
3: mean, we have to take sexual assault because poor Julia is assaulted a number of times in the yep. book by a number yep. of men. So, yeah, definitely trigger warning there if you want to read it. It's it's not fun on that front. No. Extramarital pregnancy? No, just like the abortion. No extramarital pregnancy. No. Um, no masturbation, I think.
2: Well, there's the cinema, isn't there? And the man posing up to her. Yes. But it's... I don't think that's far enough for us to... We would assume that that's a place where men go to masturbate in the dark. I don't know. But it seems like that's what's going on. No. I suppose if you have a mind like mine, maybe, you you know, you kind of know what's coming. I don't know. I'd say no. You can't say it's there because it's not really there. Yes. Yeah, I think it's... It never gets to a point at which...
3: Julia works out what he wants, although she does appear to know in a sort of an implicit way.
2: Implicit way, yeah.
3: Sex toys? I don't think there were any sex toys. God, no. No. I mean, imagine if he put in sex toys as well. Wow. 1961.
2: I mean, it could be a solution for Julia. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, when Michael gets his miracle, uh, you know, that could be a solution and it can be mail-ordered. But we, we just don't
3: know, do we? No, we don't. Definitely not feminist or feminism in this book. I think we have to agree that the female character isn't the most representative of equality and uh, yeah, taking no. women seriously. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not feminist text. Um, <laughs> no. And yeah. that wouldn't be why they banned it either. It wasn't because no. it was about uh, women getting uppity.
2: No, there's no agency really there or space for agency.
3: Yeah, I think that's fair enough. So we leave that one. There's no divorce, obviously, because Michael is a super Catholic and would never get divorced. Mm -hmm. There is no contraception. Same reason there's no abortion or extramarital pregnancy. Yeah, Menstruation, no, obviously not. Blasphemy. Yeah, I think there are multiple points at which Catholics would be offended in this text. So many. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely tick that one. I mean, if you could do by 10, you could definitely say blasphemy by 10. Yeah. Uh, Miracles happening to horrible people is definitely a blasphemous concept. (laughs) Oral sex. I don't think there was any
2: references to that. I think the sex is so buried between the lines that we know it's short. It's always kind of short and disappointing.
3: It's so it's I, like the tea. It's weak and dreary. Yeah,
2: And dreary. I could be also like the coffee full of cream. Oh, I went there. Um <laughs> I think it's just like missionary and quick and disappointing. Yeah. But I don't think moral sex comes into it.
3: No, I don't think they're that adventurous. Graphic violence Well, there is that point at which Julia's beaten by Stephen and that's pretty horrible.
2: That's terrible, yeah.
3: Yeah. So I think we'd have to take that. And then finally, obviously, lots of queer content, since the whole book is pretty much about queer life and exploring what it means to be queer in the context of the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So we say 1959
2: to 60. Yeah. It was written Uh, around that time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: So I think looking at the scores, I think it gets, does it get nine? That's actually a respectable score. Um yeah. by the standards of a lot of the books that I've read I mean 5 yeah. is not unusual. So he managed to get a lot of transgressive material in in a short space of time.
2: Very constrained space. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's impressive. So thank you so much Declan for shedding a light on an unusual corner of Irish literature. Part that I probably wouldn't have read actually if it wasn't for this podcast. So thanks so much for joining me and explaining so much about the layers, and I think I will reread it actually.
2: Thank you so much for
3: having me, it's been a pleasure. In the next episode, I'll turn from the mean streets of Athlone to the urban jungle of 1950s America. It's time to read some Day Keen novels, a pulp author whose work was regularly banned by the censor. There will be hot babes and burly men, and hopefully a lot of sex. Till then, don't stint on the biscuits or the strong tea. You deserve all the good things.